Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am here today with Michael Severance. And it's a very big treat, Michael, to have you here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Michael is a musician. He's an instrumentalist. He plays bassoon and contrabassoon in the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. Have you been playing bassoon with him for long? I have been in the orchestra since 2014. Well, I met Michael not terribly long ago and and met his wife, who also plays bassoon. And we're going to have her on the show one of these days. And when we started talking about doing an Opera for Everyone show together, I left it with Michael to select an opera. What opera did you choose for us today? I thought Unballo and Mascara by Verdi would be a great choice. Oh, I agree. I agree. It's not a show that I've actually ever had the opportunity to see live. So I'm very excited about doing this show with you, and I really enjoyed all the preparation for it. Yeah, it's a fantastic opera, and I noticed it wasn't in your list of episodes that you had done yet, <laughs> right? and I thought, well, we can change that. Totally. And this is Verdi, post-Rigoletto, post-Traviata. I should note that it premiered in Rome in 1859, but there's a little backstory we'll fill in later on it. Sure. Well... Have you ever had the opportunity to play in this opera, bassoon or contrabassoon? I don't even know what this opera requires. I played this opera in my first season in San Francisco back in 2014. Well, so it probably has some strong memories for you, I'm imagining. Yeah, I think it stayed with me. It's a very powerful opera. And as an opera fan myself, before I had gotten the job, I was very much a fan of Verdi's work. And I had never watched this one, actually. So this was a new one for me, and I very much enjoyed experiencing it for the first time from the pit, not from the audience, but experiencing it new as part of the performance. Okay, so speaking of experiencing an opera from the pit, do you get a chance to see? What do you get to see of the opera? Because your vision is blocked as I'm picturing the pit and the stage, and I know you've got a good view of the conductor, but the action on stage? Well, in my first couple seasons, I think I sort of strained my neck by craning to look up at the stage probably more often than I should have. My chiropractor advised that I should uh, not do that. But I have a sense of what's going on on the stage from watching video of it. Watching video of the actual production that's being mounted when you're playing. Right. We're able to watch recordings of pretty much all of our rehearsals and performances in our orchestra library. So I can take a look at something I played just the previous day and watch how it went or skip over the notes that I missed, of course. Right, right. (laughs) So that video, is it just of the action on stage or is it also taking a video of what's happening in the orchestra pit? It's sort of a raw feed of a few different cameras. And then when we publish a video, we have the the full uncut version that I can watch. So I'm able to get a sense of what's going on on the stage and what the production looks like. And if I'm willing to hurt my neck a little bit, I can get a little bit of a Well, we don't want you to hurt your neck. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting, though, that you can actually see your own production. Do most musicians go back and do that at some point? Or it just depends on the individual? I think it depends on the person. There are those among us who are more of opera aficionados And there are also musicians who are more just interested in playing their part very well, but aren't 
quite as interested in the story or the overall art form of opera. Well, I noticed there you put yourself in the opera aficionado camp. I did. Yes. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Do you ever have a chance to watch operas that you're not actually playing in? I do. I try to go to all the operas that I'm not in. And I love attending operas elsewhere as well. And your wife also enjoys opera, I know. Yes, very much. That makes things easier. That does definitely make things easier. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about the experience being in the pit, but shall we introduce Un Ballo in Mascara by Giuseppe Verdi? Sure. It's an interesting one because this is, I mean, it, it's not really fair to say that this is Verdi's American opera. The way you talk about Girl of the Golden West being Puccini's American opera, but it is set in Boston. Right. And Verdi didn't really originally have that intention he was sort of forced to um, <laughs> there were a lot of places along the way before we landed in boston i think yes this was the end result he originally staged it in sweden based on a story about the real life gustav III. and when verity wanted to write this story as an opera the censors told him well, it hit a little close to home to see a European monarch killed in his own court. A big no-no. <laughs> Especially in a time of great political upheaval, like Italy was in in 1859 with the unification. Underway. <laughs> almost almost unification, just a yeah. couple short years later. And so it, it hit too close to home, so they wanted him to stage it somewhere outside of Europe. So... What's the first place we think of when we're trying to think of somewhere totally off the beaten path that is completely insignificant and nobody cares about? <laughs> the United States of America. Yes, except he doesn't set it in the United States. It's the colonies of England when he sets it because he still has to have all that regal stuff in there. You have to have titled people. You have to have nobility. It's actually required for the story to make sense to have our main character. If not a king, he still has to be a nobleman who is in charge. So he becomes the governor of the colony of Massachusetts. And there are various steps along the way to getting there. At some point, he proposed to his librettist Soma to stage it in the 12th century. And Soma thought the 12th century was much too rough and brutal an age for a story like this. He thought in a drama as brillante, as this, <laughs> that they needed a ruler who had seen something of the world and smelt the perfume of the court of Louis XV. Ooh. That's a quote from Soma. Yeah, he wants this to have an elegance, a refinement. And Gustav III of Sweden, who is the real-life character that the main character in this opera is based on, was a monarch of the Enlightenment period. We'll talk a little bit more about Gustav III from Sweden as we go along, but let's open the opera now. The opera will start with a prelude, but then there's this wonderful piece with a huge male chorus, and it doesn't all sound the same and harmonious. There's some contrast going on right in the beginning. Yes, it starts with part of the chorus praising Ricardo and wishing him well, and it has this very serene melody, and yes. then it cuts suddenly to this foreboding melody with these short repeated notes that is the part of the chorus that is against Ricardo and says, you better watch out, we're coming for you. Yes, the conspirators. Well, let's meet the folk who populate the stage in Unbalo Unmascara. Mascara. 
Michael, I was going to say we are at court because it feels very courtly with some of those voices, but we're, we're at the place of business of the governor of Boston, <laughs> the Earl, the Earl of Sussex, I believe. The chorus, I could hear the, the different voices and the change of mood with them. Right. So first we hear the very sweet melody of the people who like Ricardo, and then we hear the discontent folks voice their discontent and then we hear them together and of course Verdi combines them in a way where we hear happy and angry at the same time and it Mm. makes a nice package together it really does and it's just the first time that we're going to be hearing this contrast of the very different emotions woven together blended together in the music I, I really to my listening and viewing of this opera that is one of the standout features of what you experience at the same time you have these characters expressing these different very different feelings because the gentle peaceful portion they keep referring to love and the love and the honor of i keep wanting to call him a monarch of their governor of his lordship we do get to use titles of nobility because it's still colonial times but the henchmen and our two leaders of the henchmen samuel and tom conspirators, ones who don't like him, they're talking about hate. So we have love and hate, a very real contrast right in the beginning. And they even let us know a little bit of why they hate him so much, because they want to avenge people who have died for their leader. And they think if they get rid of him, their lives will be better. At least the score will be evened out. So this touches on an idea that we'll see a little bit later in the opera, this idea that if you are wronged by someone, you are empowered to seek revenge to even out the karmic justice of it all. (laughs) Karma not being a word the Italians probably would have used at this point in time, but yes, that that you want to set things straight. You want to even the the score, as it were. I think the word they would have used is vendetta. Vendetta, vendetta, revenge. The contrasts, like love and hate here, and even the tones and the voices, and the idea of honor being paramount, I think, in this story. Well, we're going to get a new character coming in very quickly. We're going to have, I want to call him Oscar, because that's how it's spelled. And we are in Boston, after all, but that's not how Verity would have said it. There's always that question in opera where English words are used. Do you pronounce it like someone reading an Italian word, or do you pronounce it like an English speaker? So Oscar, Oscar. Well... We can we can go between them both, or we can agree on Oscar, because it's easier for me to say. <laughs> Oscar the page. 
or the assistant to the governor is going to announce the entry of the governor who they've just been singing about, whether with love or with hate, and that is Ricardo. We don't ever call him Richard, I noticed. Richard? Dick? <laughs> you want to go full American? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to stick with Ricardo because it's fun. <laughs> Ricardo comes in and he comes in with all benevolence talking about, you can rely on me. I will protect you, my children. This very patriarchal expression of his responsibilities and the way he views his people. That he's the top guy, but with love, like a father. Right, he's depicted as a benevolent caretaker of his people here. Very much so. And Oscar brings us to the next order of business, which is invitations to the ball. He says, sir, please look over this list. And instantly, Ricardo is intrigued. He's very excited, very happy. On the list is his love interest, Amelia, who just so happens to be the wife of his best friend and confidant. Oh, that's inconvenient. <laughs> I hate when that happens, don't you? <laughs> so it's terrible. It's terrible. But we needed we needed a little bit of a, a love problem right in the beginning if we were going to have a good opera. And pretty quickly it's been presented to us that the, the guy in charge is in love with a woman, but not a woman he is free to love. Nothing good ever seems to come from opera when you declare your love from someone in act one, does it? Oh, I'd have to tickle through the file box in my brain, but I think you're probably right. <laughs> I said to my wife, if we're ever in an opera together, don't tell me you love me in act one. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Nothing good will come from it. Wait a while. Wait till the last act, and then you might stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> also, take three armed guards with you at all time. Nobody ever gets through three armed guards on an opera stage. Two, maybe. Three, you're invulnerable. I hadn't noticed that. Wow. Okay. I'm going to tuck that away and pay attention in every single opera. Anything else I need to know to keep an eye on in opera? Besides, don't say I love you before Act 3 and Three Armed Guards. Under no circumstances should you ever cough. If you cough, you're going to die. Oh, Very yeah. shortly. We're instantly thinking of Mimi, <laughs> La Boheme. It means consumption, doesn't it? Yeah. No consumption in this opera. No consumption at all. Okay, we've had a declaration of love in Act 1. A problem. Also in Act 2, but we'll get to that. Well, back on stage, we've got some new characters about to come in. Right, we're about to meet Renato, who is the best friend and confidant of Ricardo. Right, and he is that husband in question. The best friend whose wife, Ricardo, finds so attractive. Yes, and he is none the wiser at this point. His only concern at this point is warning Ricardo that there are people that want him dead. And Ricardo, being the cocksure alpha male that he is, <laughs> says, oh, I don't care about that. My people's love will protect me. God will protect me. Right. So again, that he's part of that love component. And that's what he focuses on. But Renato, he is tuned in to the voices of hate. And he's amassing actual documentary evidence of these plots against the ruler's life. And he has to say to Ricardo in this aria here, well, if something happens to you, then what's going to happen to our great country here? Yeah, you can't blithely say, I'll be fine, because you, sir, are more than just yourself. 
you are in charge of your people and your care for the people will vanish if you vanish. It's a little bit like when I perhaps drive slightly recklessly and <laughs> I tell my wife, oh, I know what I'm doing. But she says, okay, but you have me and a cat and your family <laughs> and maybe think of that a little bit too. Yeah. And I'd say, hmm, you know, that's a good point actually. Yes. <laughs> Listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Un Ballo in Mascara by Giuseppe Verdi. And that was Renato, the right hand man to not the king, the governor in colonial Boston. <laughs> Serious man, Renato. Yeah, he wants Ricardo to take these death threats a little bit more seriously. Yeah, he's got the, the welfare of the state in his mind. Well, Oscar, <laughs> the page, comes in to introduce the arrival of another character. The Chief Justice, who he introduces, allows us to understand a little bit more about how this story is going to unfold, because the Chief Justice is very serious, and he's upset about something that's going on in the realm, and a woman who needs to be exiled. And Oscar comes in to tell Ricardo that she's great, she doesn't deserve to be exiled. Yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, the reason the Chief Justice gives for wanting to exile this woman, whose name, by the way, is Ulrika, changed from the original, who was, by the way, a character actually in Sweden at the time that this all takes place. He says, no, she's practicing witchcraft. She's dabbling in things that we do not approve of, and she must go. But Oscar, in Oscar's ever sunny look at the world... Oscar says, no, no, she does wonderful things. She tells our fortunes. She tells us what's going to happen to us. It's great. She happens to have a pact with Satan. <laughs> Just throws in that little aside there. But yeah. <laughs> it's it's inconsequential. It's just it's a source she has. Well, everybody loves to hear their fortune being told. It's it's a very interesting it's a very interesting piece. Let's get a little flavor for Oscar's character describing this woman who has a pact with Satan that he doesn't want to see anything bad happen to her. <laughs> oh, the 
listening to opera for everyone and this is Giuseppe Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara, a masked ball. No ball yet. We've heard about imitations going out. (laughs) Oscar has given a great defense and Ricardo comes up with a solution to this problem of the concern about this witchy lady. He says, let's go check her out ourselves. I want to see her for myself. I'm going to dress as a Fisherman. Yes, that works in Boston. <laughs> the governor of Boston does not go see a witch dressed as the governor of Boston, of course. No, and I'll say also that this is a long-standing tradition with monarchs in Europe to go incognito to be amongst the populace. I don't know about the governors of Boston, but <laughs> what's that show where they where the boss disguises himself as one of the workers? Undercover boss. Undercover boss. <laughs> <laughs> sort of, sort of. <laughs> All right. So, so Ricardo says this is going to be fun, super fun. But our friend and his advisor Renato is not completely on board. He says, "Yeah, sure, let's go, but um, those guys still want to kill you, so let's <laughs> watch out." <laughs> it's not a good idea, boss. <laughs> yeah, but he can't. He can't make him change his mind. And we're going to finish up this scene this last part of scene one act one with a big finish where we've got all these characters on stage once again expressing different emotions in different moods all at once right we have ricardo saying let's go see her it's going to be really fun oscar is really excited to meet this soothsayer renato is cautioning ricardo about what might happen to him and the henchmen are saying that this might be a good time to strike. Oh, golden opportunity for them. A lot lot going on here at once. Yeah, in this den where the sorceress is in league with the devil. It's interesting to think about the Boston setting. Obviously, it wasn't Verdi's first choice, but this was the time of the Salem witch trials Mm. in the late 17th century. And so it sort of does make sense that there would be this soothsayer witch type person at that time in this setting. Yeah, it's not an exact fit for the history, but it's close enough from Verity's point of view. It got it away from Europe, satisfied the censors that way, and they had previously been saying the only way you can make witchcraft seem okay in your presentation on stage is to set it in the pre-Christian era. But this actually is a justifiable setting of it in a Christian era because they didn't want it to be from so long ago. Well, let's listen to all these different characters get excited for their own reasons, about going to see Ulrika in her den. Mm-hmm. 
Michael, we were very excited with everyone on stage to go on this adventure, but I also played the very beginning music of the second scene of Act One, and you can tell the mood has changed. Right. It's suddenly very spooky. These chords are very striking. Yeah. Guaranteed to wake you up if you've dozed (laughs) off by this point. Yes. You know, we used to have this patron who would often sit in the front row at the opera Mm. and would fall asleep a few minutes into every show. We would call it the world's most expensive nap. Oh, yeah. She was right in the front row. And so when we played this, of course, I knew these chords were coming up. Yeah. And so I was just watching, waiting. For this to get... Oh. When the chords were played, she jolted out of her chair. Oh, no. (laughs) I thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) Poor woman. But but I hope she was awake to enjoy this next scene. She most certainly was. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Well... In this next scene, we meet Ulrika herself. We've heard her talked about, and now we get to see if she's just as worrisome as the Chief Justice fears, or if she's as intriguing and promising as Oscar hopes. Oh, my God. 
was Ulrika from Verdi's Unballo and Mascara. But Ulrika, though she may not be dressed up like everyone else, is not actually in disguise. This is who she is, that fortune teller, or as Oscar says, that one who's made a pact with the devil so that she can see people's futures. Here she's calling for the king of the abyss to come into her house so that she can use his knowledge, essentially, in telling fortunes. She's pulling on that power, getting it any way she can. Well, of all those people who were excited to go visit Ulrika, the first one to arrive is our leader in disguise, Ricardo. And while Ricardo's there, before everyone else arrives, a certain individual enters by the name of Silvano. And Silvano, not terribly important with the intricacies of the plot, but he is representative of a certain kind of person who might visit this sorceress, this fortune teller, and a certain individual who might feel one way or the other about his leaders. Silvano's a sailor. He's been in Ricardo's service for a long time, and he wants to know what's in store for him. He wants to know if all these years he's shed blood has been worth something. Yeah, the devoted military man wants to know how it's all going to work out. Well, as it happens, the man who he refers to, his lordship, is there in disguise listening to all this. And because of that, he has an opportunity to influence events. But before any of that's going to take place, Ulrika has to do her work and tell his fortune. And she says, as long as you're in good cheer, soon you're going to get some money and a promotion. And Ricardo sees this, yes. and he writes up an order for him to get promoted and a raise. Yeah. And he secretly puts this into Silvano's pocket. And then, lo and behold, a few seconds later, Silvano finds this piece of paper in his pocket that says, you're going to be promoted and get a whole bunch of money. Well, there we go. Proving her powers. Or not. <laughs> sort of a reverse pickpocket. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's... It's also trying to give us, I think, a little flavor of Ricardo's character or possibly Gustav III's character, the king upon whom this character is based, who's a complicated character. We can maybe take just a minute to talk about Gustav III, this king of Sweden at the end of the 18th century. He was a king who was trying to restore absolutism to his country, which sounds rather frightening when you think of it that way in this Enlightenment period. We're, and we're talking post-American Revolution, and it's just in the throes of the repercussions of the French Revolution when he is, in fact, assassinated in 1792 at a masked ball. Gustave III, while he wanted to restore absolutism, he also practiced a lot of policies that the Enlightenment celebrated. He wanted to reduce the authority, and here's where it's all going to make sense with these conspirators. He wanted to reduce the authority and influence of the various local members of the nobility. He was trying to strengthen the kingship by taking away the power of the nobility. So you can understand why the nobility was actually mad at him. And that's what, in fact, led to the assassination of Gustav III. But besides the political angle, <laughs> there's, a, there's a real artistic angle to Gustav III. Yes, he's killed by upset nobility at a masked ball, which was, by the way, being held at the Opera House. But the Opera House itself, that was founded and initiated by Gustav III. He was quite a patron of the arts. In fact, he, he helped co-write one opera, 
about one of his ancestors that's produced there at his opera house in Stockholm. He's a guy who was actually getting death threats all the time and had to learn to live with them and decide to cower or not. And he didn't. So again, that, that seems to ring true with Ricardo, our character on the stage here. But besides this opera house, he is also the founder of the Swedish Academy. It's the academy, sort of like the Académie Française. It maintains standards for the Swedish language. But in modern day, it's, it's the group that selects the winners for the Nobel Prize in Literature. They're the people who administer that. He creates a national costume and says, yep, this is what we are as Swedes. And also along Enlightenment ideals, he believed in freedom of religion, or tolerance, I should say. And he legalized the practice of Catholicism and Judaism within the realm, strengthening religious freedom. He broadened economic opportunities for the average person, which is definitely going to be possible if you limit the authority of the nobility. And he was very active in criminal reform by reducing, we are talking about the 18th century here, reducing the use of torture and capital punishment in criminal prosecution. So he's very much an Enlightenment ruler, except he wants to still be an absolutist. It's, it's a little mind-bending for an American potentially to understand him, but you can see how he inspires love on the one hand and also inspires anger to the point of we need to get rid of him. Well, the censors didn't want Verity to focus on those sorts of issues. So it had to be it had to be personal with the conspirators. It had to be over some sort of hereditary grudge. And when we will hear the conspirators talking about wrongs specifically that were done to their own families to satisfy that demand of the censors. So this largesse that he shows by giving this promotion to Silvano is part of this benevolence. He's sort of playing God almost here. Yeah. And a benevolent absolutist here. He wants to be in charge, but he also wants to show care for his people. Verdi leaves this ambiguous. We don't know if this was actually some sort of magic that she invoked, or if this was just a self-fulfilling prophecy, because the guy who had the ability to make the promotion happen happened to be there hearing it. And there's something a bit later on in the opera, too, that is unclear whether it was the result of magic or if it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. That sort of makes sense to leave it ambiguous, I think, because you don't know what the causes are behind these actions. It's just like the difference between Oscar's view of Ulrika and the Chief Justice's view of Ulrika. What do you attribute her prophecies to? Do you think she's a scammer? Do you think she's onto something? It's very interesting. Well, we know that this first prophecy we've heard her make has come true on stage, whatever the reason. And as they're all being amazed and impressed by her, there's someone knocking. Who is it? Who's at the secret door to her cavern? Amelia's servant. 
Mm. He says, I have someone who really wants to see you in private. Yeah, clear the room, everybody. <laughs> and they do. VIP client has arrived. Yeah, yeah. Well, not everybody leaves. Someone lurks in the shadows and remains behind. The one who is desperately in love with Amelia. Ricardo, the governor, Earl of Sussex. Or in some mountings of the show that revert to the Swedish setting, Gustav III himself. So our guy in charge, our lead, he's hiding to hear his lady love talking to the fortune teller. Just a little wholesome stalking, <laughs> as one does with their crush. Well, he wants to know everything he can know about her, and she has come to Ulrika with a problem. Right. She's admitting that she has this love that she isn't comfortable with having. That's a polite way to put it. She's, she's in love with a fellow who she shouldn't be in love with. Ooh. That almost sounds like it's matching up, doesn't it? Right. She's in love with Ricardo. Mm. And she wants to not be in love with Ricardo. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Ulrika says, I know what'll cure you. I know the secret potion. You can make it from this magic herb. Oh, so far so good. <laughs> Common home remedy, of course. I think you can get it over the counter these days. <laughs> but back then you had to <laughs> go out into the wilderness at midnight mm. by the gallows of course in as creepy of a spot as you could possibly imagine yep some something about the soil is more fertile there it grows this herb you can only get it there <laughs> and you have to do it after midnight and she can't even send someone else to do it because it must be her who right. picks up this herb and brings it back to ulrika to make a magic potion but she says, you do this this one little thing you go yourself at midnight by the gallows you pick this herb and I can make a potion that'll cure you of your infatuation. And poor Amelia here, she is bereft because she knows she should not be in love with this man. And she really wants a solution. But when she realizes Ulrika has a solution, she's suddenly very afraid that it might actually work. Right. She has to pray to God to give her the strength to even take this. Yeah, to purify her heart to quiet the fiery passion that's in her soul for this man. And Ricardo, overhearing this, has a certain reaction. He says, well, I know the solution to this. I'll just follow her there. Yeah. And maybe make sure that she doesn't take it. Yeah, or, or have a minute alone, since now I know when she's going to be going by herself to a secluded spot. And he's also just thrilled to hear that she has this passion. He assumes it's for himself, but... We're going to need Act 2 to confirm that definitively. Right.
after hearing so much about Amelia, it's nice to finally hear her voice. But of course, it wasn't just her in that clip. We also had Ricardo, Ulrika, and the hangers-on of Ulrika, all chiming in with their concerns. So at the end of all of that, Amelia has left with her goal in mind. But we don't just have Ulrika left on the stage with Ricardo in hiding. Pretty quickly, the stage fills up again with all the people who had left to give Ulrika and her special guest some space, and also all of those folks from the court or the governor's office who decided they would also be in disguise to visit Ulrika and see what happens when Ricardo encounters Ulrika, what his decision might be. This is Ricardo's turn to have his fortune told now. Yes. And before he actually has that done, he prefaces it with a little aria in which he basically says that it doesn't really matter whatever his fortune is Mm. because it's not going to really affect him. He says, tell me my fortune, etc., etc., but no matter what it is, terror will never enter my soul. He doesn't really let anything bother him, does he? So he still sees this as sort of a joke. Kind of just here for the entertainment. Sure, go ahead and tell me my fortune. Doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Go ahead, let's hear it. (laughs) Yeah, and he keeps with the character that his costume suggests. He's a sailor, and he's going to introduce himself as this traveler on the sea, and he embellishes it with some details in this lovely little piece, which I recently learned is a barcarolle, a particular style of song. The style of song comes from the Venetian gondoliers. They're usually in 6-8 meter. And so it's fitting that he's talking about being a sailor and he uses this style of song, or we should say Verdi employs this style of song (laughs) to tell this story. For the lay people among us, could you explain what it means, what significance a 6-8 meter is or or what that means? Sure. So a famous example of 6-8 would be Pop Goes the Weasel. You can think of three divisions per beat. So... So one, two, three, All right, here I am nodding along with you as you <laughs> count it out. So here's a little bit of Ricardo's Baccarol, where he introduces himself as a sailor in need of having his fortune told. <laughs> Divina, 
so mi sveglio ai fischi del nome ripeto fra tuoni ripeto fra tuoni le dolci canzoni This is Opera for Everyone, and we're listening to Un Ballo in Mascara by Giuseppe Verdi. And I'm here with Michael. Michael, that Barcarolle was lovely, and he's got pretty much everyone in the room on board with him, but not everyone. On board. I see what you did there. <laughs> yes. I didn't even realize. <laughs> so this song in which Ricardo is asking for his fortune to be told, although basically saying it doesn't really matter because right. I'll be fine either way, is sort of dripping with this boisterous bravado. It's showing us this guy is kind of arrogant. Remember, he's just here because he thought it would be kind of entertaining to see what Ulrika's doing. And so he's letting her know that I'm not really interested in what you have to say, but go ahead. Yeah, it's almost he's just more interested in creating his cover story. Well, Ulrika doesn't confront him directly, but when she does reply to him, she's going to say, whoever you are, you might be jolly today, but you're going to be sad quite soon. Right. And so she tells his fortune and she says, you're going to die very soon. Yeah. And he says, well, if it's on the field of honor, then I'm glad to hear that. And she says, no, by the hand of a friend. Well, that, that's enough to get your attention. Now, if I were told that one of my friends was soon going to kill me, yeah. I would be concerned, miffed, maybe. Yeah. But Ricardo thinks this is hysterical. He right. says this is a joke. And he finds this so funny. And he sings this next number in which he says how much this amuses him. He can't believe how silly this is. Oh, <laughs> 
Well, some of the other characters on stage may be getting concerned for Ricardo, people like the chorus, who are his supporters, and Oscar, his page. But Ricardo thinks it's a lark, just like he has from the very beginning. And Ulrika adds to her prophecy. It's not just that he's going to be killed. A friend of his, someone very close to him, is going to do it. She says, I can tell you even more. The next person whose hand you clasp, that is the person who will be your murderer. And he says, great. Sticks out his hand and says, who wants to prove her wrong? Benissimo. And all the hands disappear into cloaks, into pockets, up their sleeves. No one wants to be that person. So, of course, a new person comes on. The one person who isn't on stage from his inner circle. Renato enters. And Ricardo says, see, told you this whole thing was wrong. I'm going to shake my trusted friend's hand. And he shakes Renato's hand. Yes. So, of course, he can't be killed by the person who shook his hand. It's his best friend. Right. And so many of the people present are in disguise, and they know who these characters are. And Ricardo, the governor, is unmasked. This is not our masked ball. This is him in disguise to visit Ulrika. But he has been wearing a disguise like a masquerader. This drops, and everyone has to treat him like a king, essentially. But Ulrika says... My prophecy is good and wonders why these people are here. He explains, well, you were exiled, but I wanted to check up on you myself. And she starts to get a little concerned. She has no interest in being exiled. Does he exile her? He tosses her some money and says, say no more. Yeah, she's good. She's good. He gives her money. He thinks it's all very funny. Still a lark to him, but people around him are concerned. And even the People who want him dead are uneasy because their plans have been foiled. And at about this time, we get a reappearance of Silvano, that sailor who had such good fortune, prophesied for him by Ulrika, fulfilled by Ricardo. He begins what's going to become our rousing finish to the first act. Silvano leads a boisterous, happy song about, O son of England, beloved of this land, please continue to rule us in health and happiness sort of sounds like a national anthem. It has a very patriotic, nationalistic flair to it. It really does. And you've got, once again, these multitudes of characters with different points of view and different emotions at this time, all singing at once. Yeah, they're sort of all singing over each other at the same time. You know, this kind of happens in the opera world often when we have... In real life? Yes. When there's an argument... Oh, the passions are high. As soon as everybody gets all hot and bothered and starts <laughs> yelling at each other, they all go back to their native language. Mm. You can only be really angry at someone in your native language. Yes. And I think nobody's really listening to each other. I don't know if any of them are really paying attention to what each other are saying. <laughs> it's just sort of a cacophony of all these languages. Doesn't matter what language the opera's in. <laughs> So, does this happen very often on stage? Probably more than ideal. <laughs> Follow-up question. Does this ever happen among the musicians in the orchestra pit? Oh, never. Oh, never. All right. Well, that's official. <laughs> well, let's hear this rousing end to Act One, where everyone is sharing their emotions and their feelings. Oh, 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 oh. 
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast, where you can find scores of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright, joined by special guest co-host Michael Severance. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Michael Severance. Hey, Michael, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. And just a reminder to everyone, Michael is not just somebody who loves opera and talking to me. He is a musician in the San Francisco Opera Orchestra playing bassoon and contrabassoon. So I am really grateful that you're here to talk about opera with us today. Happy to be here. Well, before we carry on with our show, I'd like to take just a moment to say thank you to all the people involved in creating the music on this lovely CD that we're listening to today. This is from a recording made in 1966 with conductor Eric Leinsdorf leading the RCA Italiana Opera and Chorus, and the choral director was Nino Antonellini. And as far as our singers go, we have Riccardo, the governor of Boston, Sung by Carlo Bergonzi, Renato, his secretary, and the one whose hand he just shook, <laughs> is sung by Robert Merrill. Leontine Price sings the role of Emilia. Ulrika, Shirley Verrett, Oscar, Oscar, The Page, Riri Grist, that's that trousers role sung by a soprano. Silvano, the sailor, whose fortune is told and made, is sung by Mario Bazzola Jr., Samuel, one of our lead conspirators, sung by Ezio Flagello, and Tom, the other lead conspirator, is sung by Ferruccio Mazzoli. Thank you one and all for the beautiful music that we're listening to today. And now, Michael, it's the beginning of the second half, and we always have the opera helmet quiz. And I'm going to ask you to help out. It's not really a quiz. We just call it that. It's where I ask you, please, can you just sum up what we've talked about as far as plot goes? Bring people up to speed if they're just joining us at the moment. What has happened in Act One? Because 
we did finish act one with part one of our show. Ricardo, the governor of Boston, is in love with his best friend's wife, his best friend being Renato and his wife being Amelia. And there's a plot afoot to kill him by conspirators that oppose him. He goes to get his fortune read and Ulrika, the soothsayer, tells him that the next person who shakes his hand will kill him. Mm. And whose hand does he shake? Of course, his best friend, Renato. Who knows nothing about this prophecy. Yeah. Well, that was nice and succinct. That's where we are. And one thing to point out is we've only seen a little bit of the woman who inflames the passions of Ricardo, his best friend's wife. Only seen her a little bit getting some advice from Ulrika about how to rid herself of these feelings of love and passion she has for the wrong man. But act two, we're going to get a big dose of Amelia. Gesundheit. <laughs> Why did you say that? Did I? Well, you said act two. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's, is this a joke that I should know about? <laughs> it's, a, it's an ancient joke. Okay. I like a good old joke. <laughs> Act two, you told me you really thought this was the heart of the opera. Yeah, I think this is where we've gotten past a lot of the exposition of act one. And we're now into really fleshing out these characters and learning more about them. As you said, we've barely seen any of Amelia up to this point. And in this act, we get to see a lot of Amelia and learn what she's all about. When we last left her, she was going to go to pick an herb after midnight, Mm. which will be used to make this magical potion that will allow her to forget Ricardo. Yeah. She really suffers. She's so torn up inside, and she really gets a chance to to share that with us here. She's, She's unhappy about these feelings she's having, and she's also unhappy, it seems, a little bit uncertain about solving the problems now that a solution has been presented to her. Well, if I told someone the issues I was having and they told me to go take some magic herbs, (laughs) I would have some questions. Yes, that's fair enough. Well, it does lead to some very beautiful music.
That was Amelia in Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara. Amelia is suffering, and now she's terrified because she's alone in this terrifying place, and she's seen a person, someone moving. She's sure this is going to be the end of her. And it turns out Ricardo is there. As we know, he followed her there. Uh, Yes. (laughs) If her heart can only slow down, but her heart's not going to completely slow down because Ricardo's there for a reason. He wants to find her alone to talk to her. It's quite a romantic setting in the middle of nowhere, out in the countryside next to the gallows in the middle of the night. (laughs) He's still my beating heart. Yeah. (laughs) But he's a smooth operator. He knows what he's doing. He Well, we'll see. This is is what the ladies like, right? When you follow them (laughs) out to the middle of nowhere at night. Surprise them, make them think you're a dead person rising from the grave. Yeah, it's really just going to win her over, I am sure. But that I should be sure because I know what happens. This opera should not be taken as dating advice. (laughs) Very few operas should. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, we come into this opera and without full explanation, we don't even get to see the meat cute or anything. He's in love with her. She's in love with him. But it's a problem. And we didn't get to see any of that. What we are going to get right here is a chance for these two finally to express their feelings to one another. But we know that she is trying very hard to resist him. After all, she went to see Ulrika, and she's here in the middle of the night by the gallows to get this herb because she wants to resist this this love she feels. But he he wants to hear from her how she feels. And so this next excerpt that we'll hear is him trying to get her to spill the beans, come out and say it, come out and say that you love me. And eventually she capitulates and she does say it. And we have some really wonderful music from Verity that depicts this moment. Lo 
Amelia has broken down and told Ricardo that she loves him. She knows it. she shouldn't, but she loves him. And he wants to hear more. Yes, he celebrates this. He's very happy to hear it. <laughs> and he says, tell me again. I want to hear it again. And the beauty of this music convinces you how wonderful they both feel in this moment when they decide to ignore the spooky surroundings, decide to forget briefly about Renato, his best friend, her husband, and they just enjoy for a brief little time the beauty of this love that they've allowed themselves to confess to each other.
Michael, those two are in love. So it's all good now. They've confessed their love. Yeah, this is the end of the opera. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for listening. <laughs> this has been opera for everyone. <laughs> People are checking their watches as we speak. No, the course of true love never did run smooth, someone once said. <laughs> so they don't get to be alone much longer. We're going to have exactly the wrong person come onto the stage. The best friend, the husband shows up so amelia puts on her veil which in opera is basically an invisibility cloak well i mean he sees a person but could be any woman right yeah (laughs) and ricardo says to renato to take her into the city don't look at her yes yes renato is tracked down ricardo because he's still worried about ricardo's safety he wants to make sure that these evildoers don't get to him which this would be a very secluded spot to do something terrible and how awkward of him to ask him to escort his own wife who he's not allowed to see as his own wife to safety right well he says okay you're here with a woman whatever that's not what matters but of course amelia (laughs) and ricardo know it it matters very much and he does he makes him promise to keep her identity a secret let her wear her her covering over her face so no one knows who she is and then just take her to the city and let her go so theoretically she can find her way back to her own home without renato knowing it's his own wife and this goes just about as well as you'd expect well the conspirators show up at exactly this moment oh renato is right to be concerned And they say, oh, we thought it was Ricardo we were following. I guess it's you. Right, because at this point, Ricardo has, in fact, listened to his counselor. And once he secured Amelia's getaway with the promise, Ricardo does finally listen to Renato to leave. Amelia is also begging him to leave because she doesn't want these evildoers to get him. Right. But when the conspirators show up, we've got Renato, who they know is not ricardo but he is very close to ricardo and they think it's very suspicious that he's here with this veiled woman tensions run a little high (laughs) they almost come to blows yes (laughs) and amelia stops that by revealing who she is yes yes much to the surprise of renato (laughs) i just oh how awful poor amelia she's she's having a rough time here And the conspirators are dumbstruck at what they're seeing. Why is this guy gallivanting around at night in secret? And then it turns out the person he's with is just his own wife. Is this some sort of weird honeymoon? They do say that. And they think this is hysterical. Right, right. And and of course, Renato's beside himself with, with fury and she can't believe that he's found her in this compromising position which by the way she hasn't taken it any further than talking to this man alone but renato is not only furious he's completely humiliated by the response of the conspirators so verity gives us this really funny number where they laugh at the situation yes and it's cheerful music when they're laughing It's such a departure from the music we just heard. Oh, yes. Yes. And at the same time they're laughing, Renato is absolutely furious. This is my reward for all that I do for him. 
he's running around with my wife in the middle of the night. Right. And Amelia is, of course, just miserable at this point. Completely, because she knows what a compromising position she's been found in. And the conspirators are just saying, this is going to be the talk of the town. How funny is this? (laughs) What on earth are they doing? This is hysterical. They could not think of anything funnier. They're going to tweet this to all their friends. Exactly. Well, when Renato finally gets himself under control, he says, hey, Samuel, Tom, will you come to my home tomorrow morning? I uh, want to talk to you about something. Yeah, that conspiracy against Ricardo is starting to sound pretty nice, actually, at this point. Yes, and that's what's in his mind. But the conspirators are like, no, that's a little risky for us. Uh, I'm not so sure, but they finally agree. And, and they continue to laugh their way through this scene till we get to the end of Act Two. Because in tight.
giurato chi ha le porte va durre della città. Now the third and final act of Unballo in Mascara by Giuseppe Verdi. We're at Renato's house, and the music we hear at the start of the act should clue you in as to how he's feeling about everything. Yes, I feel clued in about how Renato is feeling and what the mood in his home is like. We see the husband and wife together. After this public, very public humiliation, we are now in the private home life, and he he lets loose on his wife. He wants to kill her. Says it straight out, repeatedly, there must be blood to pay for this crime. And this reflects that delito d'onore, the idea that If you killed your wife who was unfaithful to you, you would receive a very light punishment. It might even be as little as one year in prison. And because of how this was handled in Italian law, this reaction might have been considered understandable or normal. Mm. But Amelia hears his fury and takes it in and she feels terrible about what she's done. Even though she hasn't done anything, really. He calls her adulteress, and she says, but I, I am not. And she's appealing to God for mercy. And Renato basically says, well, yeah, he's the only one who's going to give you mercy, because I'm sure not going to. But I love it when she points out to him, husband, you have one suspicion. Is that enough for you? Does that really prove that I'm guilty of anything? Don't you have any, any pity or any sense for that matter? And he's just... Nah. Blood must flow. Really. But she pleads, just let me see our son one last time. Yeah, she she says, fine, I'm not going to convince you. And when she pleads to see her son one last time, it is one of the most heart-rending moments in opera, as far as I'm concerned. I will confess to shedding a tear while watching this scene and listening to her sing. Please, if you won't spare my life, allow me to be with my son, who's going to have to know that his father murdered his mother.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Unbalo in Mascara. And that was a mother pleading with her murderously intentioned husband to allow her to see her son. Does he relent? He says, okay, you can see him. Go over there in the dark in that room over there. Yeah. You can see him. Yeah. I don't want to see you see him. Yeah. And fine, I'm not going to kill you, but somebody has to pay for this. So it's going to be Ricardo. Right. She had given up trying to convince him, but her pleas about her son do finally move his heart. But blood must spill. And he is going to stick to that plan that he began hatching when all those men were laughing at him. And conveniently enough, in his home, he has a portrait, always must be there because it's integral to the plot. He has a portrait of the governor, and he sings this next aria to that portrait. Renato calls Ricardo a traitor, and he swears that he's going to kill him. But then there's also a surprising section halfway through this aria where he just remembers the good old days with Amelia. Yes. And we're maybe made to feel pity for this guy. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Maybe the audience of, of the day would be more agreeable to to murder in this case. But Verdi gives us this lovely remembrance of his earlier days with Amelia. Yes, and, and as I understand it, this is really the showpiece aria for this character in the opera. It's the one that when you're reading about the opera, everyone references and it was you who stained that soul
That was Renato. He is sad about the death of his friendship and the fact that he's going to have to kill his best friend, but he's determined justice must be done, blood must spill. Conveniently enough, once he finishes this aria, those two head conspirators, Samuel and Tom, show up as invited to his home. Renato lets them know he has proof, documentary proof, of the conspiracy that these two have hatched. But he says, nevertheless, I'm going to join you now. Yeah, they can't believe it. They're like, oh no, you're going to turn us in? Is that why you invited us here? (laughs) And they actually argue over which one of them gets to kill him. Yes, they all want the honor of killing Ricardo. Yes. This is where each of these men, Tom and Samuel, explain that there's this long grudge in their family that they have against Ricardo. And when they're still a little suspicious of Renato, because after all, he has been Ricardo's right-hand man, he said, don't worry, you know how I'll prove to you that I'm in earnest? My son. If I'm not telling you the truth, you may kill my son, he says. He puts up his son as collateral for this terrible deed. It's just, this is why I don't have sympathy for the man, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) All right, so they're arguing about who gets the honor of killing the governor, Ricardo. And Renato comes upon a solution as to how to decide this. Yeah, they all write their names down. They draw a name, or actually they have Amelia draw a name for them. Yeah. Yeah, she doesn't have a very good feeling about this. <laughs> and turns out Renato gets the honors. <laughs> so was this the prophecy of Ulrika or was this just a one in three chance? Verity doesn't clarify that for us. We're not told. But to lighten the mood a little bit, we have the ever cheerful Oscar, Oscar, come onto the scene. And Oscar invites them to a masked ball. We have a nice little moment where he says the name of the opera in the opera. Yes. Kind of like a James Bond movie. Right. Yes, and he's very excited about the ball, and he's very excited that they're going to be coming. And so Verdi finishes the scene with the quintet. The three conspirators are really looking forward to killing Ricardo at the masked ball. And here's where Soma, our librettist, fits in the title to the previous version of the opera, Una Vendetta in Domino. A revenge in masquerade. That's one of the lines that is sung by Samuel and Tom at this moment. And they decide on a shared outfit that they'll wear so that they can identify each other. And a password. The password is, of course, morte, death. Yes. Which I tried using as my password. (laughs) And the computer told me that I needed a symbol and a number. Yeah. It wouldn't let me use it. Yeah. Well, this was simpler times. (laughs) Death one dollar sign. Yeah. So Verity finishes the scene with the quintet. The three conspirators are looking forward to getting their revenge at the ball. Amelia is terrified and wishes she could warn Ricardo. Mm. And Oscar is just really happy about the ball coming up. (laughs) Cheerful, cheerful Oscar.
moving from a very crowded scene at the end of scene one of act three, there's two more scenes to come, to a very intimate scene where we're alone with Ricardo on the stage. He now is dealing with the fallout from this scene where he knows that she loves him, but he also knows he must give her up and he can't jeopardize her honor or her life by going any further than hearing her acknowledgement of love. So he decides to order Renato to England and Amelia along with him so that the ocean will separate them from him. Yeah. Get them far away, husband and wife, and he can't cause any trouble and nothing will harm her. And he even goes so far as to put these plans in writing. But as he's doing it, the song he sings, there's a cry in his voice, a cry of sadness and desperation that he must let go of this immense love that he feels for Amelia. Breakingly sad scene is going to be relieved by you know who? Oscar. Yes, <laughs> in comes happy Oscar. Always shows up none the wiser to the drama going on <laughs> with all the cheer in the world. Yes. But he has a letter for Ricardo. He said, An unknown lady gave me this letter. And the letter says that someone at the ball will try to kill you. Mm hmm. Ostensibly, this is from Amelia. Yes. But Ricardo says, but if I don't go, people will think I'm a coward. And nobody can even suspect that. No, no, no. He has a position to maintain. And besides, after Oscar leaves, he confesses to himself and therefore to us that if he goes to the ball, he gets to see Amelia again before she's sent off. Well, now we finally are going to get... (laughs) 
<laughs> that ball, that masked ball that is promised to us in the title, in the final scene of the final act of this opera. Let's let the chorus set the stage for us. That was the chorus in the masked ball itself, telling us that love and the dance go on in these halls. Life is only a fleeting dream. It's it's just this magical moment and a real set piece for an opera to have all this, this glamour of all these people masquerading in their lovely party clothes. But Things turn dark pretty quickly when we see those men dressed in the costumes that they just agreed to so that they would recognize one another. They're searching for Ricardo, trying to figure out which one he is. When Renato stumbles on Oscar, yes. <laughs> Renato manages to convince Oscar to tell him what Ricardo is wearing so he can identify him. Oh, yes. He says, it's really important business. I have to talk with him. Yes. And everything's your fault if I don't get to talk to him and everything fails. Yeah, so Oscar, who was sworn to secrecy about the costume, crumbles. He says, oh, okay, I guess I have to tell you. <laughs> Ricardo and Amelia have one last moment together. Well, yes, they have one last moment together, but it's a very different mood for each of them. Ricardo's thrilled to see her, knowing he has to say goodbye, but she is terrified for his life. She understands that there is a very real plot to have him killed, and most likely that name she drew of her husband, he's the guy to do it. And she's once more, just as she did out by the gallows, telling him to flee. You must leave this place for your own safety. And Ricardo retains that bravado that we've seen throughout the show, where he's not that concerned for his life. Well, they say goodbye, and Renato interrupts their goodbyes to give his own, and he stabs Ricardo. Yes, yes. Then he says, and this is my farewell to you, after having just seen Ricardo once more with his wife. So the crowd gangs up on Renato and says, death to the traitor, death to the traitor. says no let him go in one of these only in opera i'm going to sing beautifully while i'm dying scenes this is this is quite a death scene for ricardo they never seem to get stabbed in the vocal cords do no they? no 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 and they seem to retain the ability to to really throw their voice out there and 
This is a very affecting death scene, as far as I'm concerned, because he lives up to that idealized version of a man in charge, that benevolent ruler. He may amass all the power, but benevolence is what's top on his list at this moment. So he forgives everybody. He says, I didn't do anything with Amelia. I was going to promote you and send you off. You all have my pardon. Everybody is absolved. Yes, and he also takes the time to say, I have nothing to gain from this. I'm a dying man. I am telling you the truth. And he gets Renato to listen to him when he says, your wife is innocent. She did nothing wrong. So that not only is he forgiving, he's making it possible for Renato to forgive and to live on with his wife. And Ricardo sings farewell to everybody and he dies. Yeah, he does. Just a little historical note here. The actual Gustav III of Sweden, who was stabbed at that mass ball at the opera, this is echoing a little bit of what actually happened there because he was shot and he lingered for 13 days before infection, sepsis actually is what killed him from this wound. I mean, antibiotics do matter. <laughs> he probably got in a few lengthy arias there. Yeah, yeah. Well, he did He did do a lot of things that he wanted to do and set it up for a regent to be in place so his son could assume power when he came of age. So he did try to sort of set things straight in his dying days, realizing that this was going to be a fatal wound that he received from the assassins. However, the actual assassins, the, the man who pulled the trigger, was punished horribly and ultimately killed. And some of the other conspirators were also punished, but not all of them who were known to be part of the plot, just the main central ones. At any rate, in our opera, forgiveness abounds. And he also makes forgiveness possible for the husband who felt that he had been so terribly wronged when, in fact, he was incorrect about that. Well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining me on Opera for Everyone as we delved into this. And what a magnificent opera you chose. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Pat.
listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright, joined today by Michael Severance of the San Francisco Opera Orchestra. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable because we believe opera is for everyone.